Well, Father, as we open our Bibles on this first Sunday of the new year, uh, we do want that cleansing agent of the Word to wash over us. We want your Holy Spirit to convict us. We need your power to have the courage to tell ourselves the truth and to let the Word of God do its work in us. Father, would you please, as you do so often at this hour, just use your Word in its simplicity and in its straightforward honesty to to chisel away at us and to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. We, We admit that we are easily turned away, we are easily defeated and discouraged, and we don't like that about ourselves, and we want to be strong and in the power of your might, and we want to think biblically, and we want to be courageous and and able to walk against the grain of the world. Um, So please use your word effectively in us as individuals and as a church. And thank you so much, Father, for the presence of your spirit and that mysterious way that he takes the word and he illumines it and puts it uh, to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord, asking you to just bless this time. Amen. Well, we are back in Matthew chapter 6, and I admit to you, I'm stuck. I'm having a hard time moving off of these verses. Uh, It brought to mind a mental picture that I hadn't thought about for a long time. Uh, This will date some of you, but back in the 60s, when I was in elementary school, we used to have little paste bottles, jars of paste that had a plastic... A wand that went down into it with a little handle and it had a metal cap that went over our paste. Now that paste was good to eat. I used to like to eat that stuff. And, and that metal cap had a hole in it where that little handle for spreading your paste. And every once in a while, some kid would like putting a ring on his finger, take that metal lid and it had a hole in the middle and put it on his finger and then it would be stuck. And you just can't get rid of it. And they would start to cry and everything would come to a standstill and and this lid was stuck and it was going to cut their finger so they'd have to go down to the janitor's closet and find tin snips and cut the little metal cap off. Now we're so much safer in school, it's a good thing. (laughs) But if you think of this passage kind of like a paste lid stuck to the pastor, that's kind of what's happening. Um, If you're tired of it... um, You have to deal with that. If you're being challenged by it like I am, which is my prayer, I need this and I think our church needs this, then let's do another 30, 40 minutes, you know, 50 minutes here, okay? And um, I'm a little bit worried. And then I got convicted because next week we start with verse 25 and we're not supposed to be anxious and worried, but... This passage that I'm stuck on has me worried a little bit. We talked about that last week. Let's reread the passage. Matthew chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching. We're trying to take it in and apply it here to our lives as He unfolds these truths straight from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. And He says some words that to many of us are very familiar. But when you... Let them soak in, or if they stick to you, um, you realize what a serious matter it really is. He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Now remember, he's not saying don't lay up treasure. In fact, it's the opposite. He's actually going to give an instruction to lay up treasure. The problem is that we lay up treasure in the wrong way and in the wrong place, right? Where moth and rust corrupt, things that rot away, granddad's old car that we were going to fix up, parked behind the barn with weeds growing around it, and, and we were going to get around to it one of these days and restore that old car, and then we realize it's just rusted away, it's not worth it. doesn't last very long. Or we have this great collection of whatever, and then, and then some punk puts a brick through the patio window and comes and takes our collection, and it's gone, and that's what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm not telling you not to to lay up treasure, Jesus is saying. I'm saying lay up treasure, but do not lay up treasure on this earth because it'll rot away, it'll get eaten up, or some punk's going to come steal it. But lay up, verse 20, for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Man, It's so convicting, isn't it? And it's so concerning, this reality that we can lay up treasure in heaven. That is, we can take take the things of this world, we can take the resources and the material goods and the financial gains of our lives here, and we can either lay up treasure that doesn't last, or we can invest them somehow in a way that when we get to heaven, they will be... Something that is part of all of eternity. Reveling in the treasure stored up in heaven. And we've been asking ourselves a couple different messages now what that looks like. How do we do that? What are some other passages in scripture that say, if you do this, you will lay up treasure in heaven? And it has directly to do with the material world, the money world. The old King James word for it was mammon. Let's read the rest of our passage here. He goes in verse 22 to talk about the eye is the lamp of the body. I think that these verses, though they're hard to interpret, we dealt with them some weeks ago, have to do with greed, as we said. Then verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's kind of think about why we're stuck on this. I brought my file cabinet up here today, and I want you to picture um, our ability to store up resources as though it's some kind of a big file cabinet. It might be like a file cabinet in heaven. I'm making this up. And uh, you got this file cabinet, and we all want to be concerned with the top drawer. The top drawer has all the information, the resources from God's Word, and this drawer is titled God's Agenda. We want to know what God is doing. We want to know what God wants us to do with our lives. We want to invest in the things that are, are what God is all about. He's our Creator. He's the one who designed us. He designed how the system works. And he put together a plan where we have this world and this life and resources that he's blessed us with to store up for all of eternity. That's God's agenda. But we also have this big deal going on. 
We all wrestle with this. And the next drawer is my plans. I love this drawer. It's filled with notebooks of my plans. This is my plans. Everything I'm going to do, a duck blind I'm going to build on the river. Everything I'm going to do in my backyard to build a new patio. And then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And it's all good stuff. And the preacher said last week, and the Bible says you're supposed to be able to enjoy all this stuff. And it's good. And I'm not worshiping money and my master is Jesus. But I've got God's agenda. I've got my plans. And then I've got this drawer here that this, you know, we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to evaluate how we live and how we've used these resources. And somehow there's going to be this reality of the treasure in heaven. The inference of Scripture is that it, it pertains for some with position. Did you know there's going to be positions in heaven in eternity future? And you'll be able to have a greater influence over the eternal state as far as how God breaks it down. I, I mean, we just have little snippets and insights in our Bible about this. It has to do with rewards in heaven, where God assesses our work and one word picture that the Apostle Paul used was that it would be tried as though by fire. And, and if it's hay, wood, and stubble, it'll burn up. But if it's made out of greater resources and more, it would last. It would be of a lasting treasure. What does that look like? What is that all about? I, I'm not really 100% sure. And you know, like I said, I worry about this. As I referenced last week, it's though you get to heaven and you have this mansion that's been prepared for you. I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And, and the King James uses that word mansion, and we really like that. It really means an apartment. But the idea is that I got my mansion waiting for me in heaven. And out behind my mansion, I got this little doghouse-sized shed where my treasures that I laid up on heaven, because I got hung up with my plans drawer, and I didn't take care of God's agenda drawer. And this drawer is counts for eternity file. And my resources and my money... And my abilities and my attitudes, for example, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It is possible, moms, to fix dinner and serve your little children with an attitude that, that brings glory to God. And I take it, it lays up treasure in heaven for you with your motive. And, and so you're filling up the counts for eternity drawer, but... We're always going back to my plans, and my plans end up in the this life only drawer. That's what that one says, this life only. You just think it's a big deal that I have the ability in the window of time that I'm on the planet, and it's the only time you get people. You, there's no such thing as reincarnation. You know that, right? You got this life, that's it. And only what's done for Christ will last. And somehow, we've got to have the courage to evaluate and assess our lives to get out of the my plans drawer and into the God's agenda drawer so that we're filling up the counts for eternity drawer rather than overflowing the this life only drawer. And that's what we're worried about. That's what we're working on. That's what Jesus is teaching about here. And I think this is just stunning. The reality that every day, every hour, all of my life, all of my resources can be used in such a way that I can lay up treasure in heaven. 
Well, at the end of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, before it transitions then into the do not worry, which is tied to the laying up treasures, we'll talk about that next week. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says this quote in another passage of Scripture, and I want us to camp there for a few minutes, and that's Luke chapter 16. And as you turn to Luke chapter 16, I want to make sure at the beginning of the message today that I make something really clear that I tried to make clear at the end of the message last week, and it is this. So Luke 16 in your Bible, because Jesus... Jesus is continuing to teach on money and materialism and this world's goods and what do you do with it and how do you get from one drawer to the other. By the way, 15%, at least 15% of all of Christ's teachings had to do with finance and money and our attitude towards it. It's interesting. But here's what I want to make clear before we go on. I want you to make sure you know that what we're talking about today and this, this taking our lives, our materialistic goods, our resources, we're talking about tangibles, taking these things and trying to lay them up in heaven as treasures or use them as a vehicle for laying up treasure in heaven, we're not talking about getting into heaven. I am absolutely not talking about things you can do to kind of have a little wow factor with God. So like you'd really do good and you give away money and you, you give away one of your vehicles and to missionaries and, and you, you know, do all kinds of things that are great and, and it's though you're going to stand before heaven and God's going to be like, wow, you're very impressive. Come into my heaven. You need to know it doesn't work that way. You do not impress God in any other way than you impress Him with your sinfulness. And God is impressed with our sinfulness, but thankfully, as we emphasized a couple weeks ago during our Christmas messages, though He is overwhelmingly impressed with our sinfulness to the point that He will damn us to hell, He also loves sinners. And where His holiness and His justice cannot look at sin out of his love and his kindness he did for us at the cross what we couldn't do for ourselves that is out of his love and kindness when we come to the cross and admit our sinfulness that's where he put Jesus on the cross to take our sin upon himself and he substituted in for us so where God's holiness and justice are can't look at sin God's love and His kindness are, let me solve this problem for you. And let me put my own son on the cross and stack all of your sin on him. And I will judge him for your sin. And there's only one way you can get into heaven. And that is, come to the cross, bow your head. Okay, spiritually speaking, come to the cross. Not this little cross from the Zion church where our church started. That's why we hung that cross up there. Come to the cross, spiritually speaking, where God and sinful people meet and where Jesus took your sin. And by faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it really clearly, for by grace, that's receiving what you don't deserve, you are saved through faith. And it even goes on to say, and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. So these works that we're talking about, these good works, God's agenda, laying up heaven in the eternity drawer... It's all about people who are born again, 
who have Christ in them, who want to live for their master Jesus and lay up treasure in heaven. It's we do this because we're going to heaven, not to get to heaven. I need you to make sure you understand that. Okay? So Luke 16. This is really an interesting story. And what I want to do is I want us to continue to just flesh out in our minds, to just build out an understanding, a growing understanding of what it means to lay up treasure in heaven and how it looks. And I was captured by the fact that Jesus repeated this warning of the two masters and money here. And as I looked at this passage, and we've been here before in the past, and uh, it's really kind of a strange story. In fact, you could argue that this is as odd of a story that Jesus, as Jesus ever told in the New Testament. But it's really interesting. And I think that it's very compelling. So let's read it, and then let's draw some lessons from it. And uh, we need to see ourselves in the story a little bit. There's going to be two main characters. There's going to be a master, a wealthy, rich master, and he has a manager. Who are we? Are we the master of our own universe? Are we managers? We're managers. What we have is by the grace of God, isn't it? I'm not saying that you haven't been productive. I hope you have. I hope you've taken the resources and the goods that God has allowed into your life and you have only multiplied and used them even more. The question is, what's your motivation for doing that? But everything we have was given to us by God. And in His sovereign placement, He allowed us to be born where we were and to have the knowledge that we have and to have a dad or an uncle teach us things or give us a business and help us go to school so that we continue to develop. And here we are just resourced incredibly, so incredibly. It's no merit of your own that that you're here. You could have been born three hours deep track drive out into the rural areas of Malawi, Africa, born into nothing and still have nothing. They're there. We're here. We all have the same responsibility, though, to lay up treasure in heaven. But the, but the teaching applied here has to do with material goods. And we have m- more material goods than anybody in the world, so we ought to really be stowing it ahead. Well, let's read the story that Jesus says here and let's continue to let this just, just um, you know, kind of bang around in our lives here a little bit and help us understand this. So he also said to his disciples, he, Luke 16, 1, is Jesus speaking to his disciples and he tells this story. There was a rich man, okay, there's our master, a rich man who had a manager, there's our second player, and charges were brought to him that this man, this man is the manager, was wasting his, that's the rich man's, possessions. I'm using the ESV. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I suspect that that's to be interpreted. I don't want to dig ditches. And I'm ashamed to beg. Here's the picture. There's a rich, wealthy guy who has vast resources, so much so that he has hired managers to help him manage his goods. He can't do it all himself. All right? This manager that he's had somehow has disqualified himself. The passage doesn't say how. And based upon just the 
the call into the office, we recognize in the story that the manager knows that he's out. It hasn't happened yet. The master has called and he says, I want to see the books. I want to review the books. And you can no longer manage. And tomorrow morning, meet me in my office at 9 o'clock. And he knows he's going to pick up his last paycheck. That's it. You're out of here. Based on hearsay, evidently, the master heard and has found out and has reason to believe that this manager has defaulted. We don't know what he's doing, but he hasn't done a very good job. Now he's worried. Okay, he's worried. He was responsible for vast resources and and he's failed. We know that he has some level of corruptness in him because that will come through in the passage in a minute. So he goes to thinking, what am I going to do? That's verse 4. So he says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. I'm going to come up with a security system here, he says. And so this is what he does. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master? And he, the debtor, said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So here's what he's doing. Okay, this passage has some controversy to it. And we get all twisted up like because the very next verse, he's going to get commended for his shrewdness. And he's called a dishonest manager. Now, the answer to that partly is, look at verse 8, let's go ahead and look at that. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Don't let that bother you too much, because if you just look up in verse 1, it says that charges were brought to him, the owner, that this man was wasting his possessions or evidently stealing them, and that's the dishonesty part. I think that we can connect that to the reason he's being fired. You don't necessarily have to attach the dishonesty claim, uh, name to what he just did. In fact, what he just did in rewriting the contracts of the debtors was what a manager did. So here's how it worked. Okay, His boss, the master, the rich man, owned fields. And a farmer wants to plow, plow the fields and plant wheat. And so he comes to the master and he says, I want to use that field. He says, go talk to my manager. He goes, talk to the manager. What field do you want? Yeah, I want that hundred acres out there. Okay. They make a deal that he can plant seed and plant wheat and grow wheat on that hundred acres. And the deal is he's going to have to give 20 bushels per every hundred bushels of that field, what it produces to his master. And that's the deal. See, he's a rich guy and he's using his property to make more money. So that guy's doing all the work. That guy gets 80 bushels. It's a good deal for him. But the master really gets a good deal because he's in the Bahamas and he's getting 20 bushels of, of every 100 bushel yield. And his manager is working there, you know, taking care of it. And what the manager would do, did you notice in the story that the debtor, the guy who's using the field, would he had him write up the contract in his own hand. So what the manager's job was, was to negotiate the best possible deal for his master. Now, if he asked too much yield from the field for his master, the guy's going to walk away and go find another field. Well, I need people to plant wheat in this field that my master owns. So he works a deal and he writes up the contract and they had the 80-20 thing going. Or the guy with the olive oil, my master owned an orchard full of olive trees. 
And he grew olives to make oil. And then he gave up so many gallons of oil to my master. And probably my master owns a storefront. And the guy has an oil store that he leases from the master too. So I'm the manager. So not only do I get so many gallons of oil coming out of the field of his olive trees, I'm picking up a few more gallons of oil for him using my storefront so he has a place to sell his oil. And we've worked this whole deal. And it's going well. But I know that tomorrow morning I'm on the way. I'm getting fired. I don't want to dig ditches. I'm not strong. I'm not a strong guy. I'm a businessman. I'm not a laborer. I don't do that. And I sure don't want to beg. That would be so embarrassing. What can I do? So the guy does something that's in the realm of his responsibility. And that is write contracts with the people. Now, it's not good business on his part, and it wasn't in his master's best interest, but it wasn't against the law. He could renegotiate the contract anytime he wanted. So he goes and calls some of these guys, and he says to them, let's renegotiate. So where the guy was given whatever the numbers were, I've forgotten already. So if you said 100 measures of oil, he says, take your bill and now write 50. So on your yield, you don't have to give me 100 measures of oil for every so much yield. You just give me 50. Well, the oil producer guy, he's loving it. He's got a new best friend, the manager. But then the master walks in, and it's time for the reckoning, and the manager's, the manager's on the way out, the master's canning him, and we go right to the point at verse 8, and it says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So anything, know this, anything that the manager might have done that was dishonest, he was not being commended for that. But this whole scheme of opening up dinner tables for the next three weeks of all these debtors that he rewrote the contract, the master kind of has to chuckle and say, the guy really had a good idea there. He got himself a bunch of free meals at the restaurant from all these guys who are so happy to rewrite the contract. All right, so now we shift gears. That's the story. Okay, Now, we have a master, right? Our master is Jesus. And we're stewards of what God has given us. And we're managers. So there's supposed to be some lessons here for us. We're supposed to get something out of this that applies to how the master wants us to function. Let's read the rest of the, of the teaching. Verse 8. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, Listen to this. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So unsaved guys who don't care at all about Jesus, who don't care that they have a creator, who don't care that they have a master, guys who are totally into the my plans drawer, storing up for this life only, the teacher says, those sons of this earth, sons of darkness, are more shrewd, they get more done, they produce more, they think more about what they're doing than the God's agenda people trying to stuff it in the counts for eternity file. Couldn't read it for a second. Principle number one for managers. Principle number one for managers. It is this principle. It is the puzzling principle of a lagging productivity. Let me say that again. Principle number one from our passage, and this is verse 8b. It is, number one, the puzzling principle of a lagging productivity. His point is, as I just explained, there seems to be a reality around us 
that we who are working towards eternity, we who know Christ, we who have the master of the universe as our master, are more careless about his agenda and storing up goods for him in eternity, working on his agenda, than the sons of this earth, the sons of darkness. Think about it. There is no Christian organization anywhere that compares, say, with the NFL. I heard the other day that, that the Big 12 Conference alone in the NCAA is divvying out for football only to each of their teams, divvying out proportionately, equally, $212 million. So of the 10 schools, every school got $12 million. So big deal, WVU paid $3 million for a fine to get out of the Big East. They knew two years later going to get a a $10.2 million check or something. Do you know any Christian organizations doing anything like that? Do you know anybody driven and organized and motivated and getting it done the way the people of the world get it done? You know they can build a sheets and a tractor supply and an Aldi's in the time it takes us to set up a portable classroom. Why? Because for them, time is money. I want to tell you something. For us, time is eternity. For us, we have just this much time. The psalmist said in Psalm 91 that we should carefully measure our days. They are fleeting. We only have this life. So what is it about us? That's what makes this principle so puzzling. The lagging productivity of the sons of light. Why is it that we are so much less productive in our ministry world, in our gospel world, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly the pearl of great price and everything I have is worth trading in for it, what is wrong with me that I can get so much more done on the job site than I can anywhere else in any other compartment of my world? You follow what I'm saying? It's the principle of lagging productivity on the part of the sons of light. I am more motivated to put money in the this world only drawer than I am the eternity drawer. There's something about the way I'm hardwired. And it's a battle, isn't it? So if we're going to lay up treasure in heaven, one thing we've got to do is become more shrewd. We've got to start thinking. We've got to start strategizing. We've got to start being creative. We've got to start saying... Okay, how can I intentionally lay up treasure in heaven? It has to be with the right attitude. It has to bring glory to Christ. It cannot be for my own gain. That's one reason why so often in the Bible, giving is commanded and taught to be done in secret. So that it helps me defeat that part of my flesh that always wants everybody to know what a good Christian I am and how much I'm laying up in heaven compared to you. And then it's, Hey, wouldn't stubble, right? Principle number one is the principle, the puzzling principle of a lagging productivity. The second thing we see is in verse nine. Look what he says. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. The word there is mammon. It means money and materialism. Okay, so it's printed out in the world. It's, it's something of this world. And it's called unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. That's a loaded sentence, a loaded verse. So the, the instruction here, couched 
in the parable of the shrewd manager is that you should make friends for yourself with the money of this world. The materialism of this world and the means that we accumulate in this world, you should use it in such a way that you invest in people and that they respond to the gospel. They are built up by it. They have their needs met. It might be that guy who was born in a hut, three hours Jeep drive off the main road in the back country of Malawi, Africa, and you gave some money here, and so Love and Yohani were able to drive out there and preach the gospel, and they received Christ, the same Christ that you received, at the same cross that you received, and the same reason you received, because they needed a substitute for their sin, and someday you now have a friend in heaven who doesn't even know your name, but the inference is that when you get to heaven, all this will be made known, and it says that you made friends for yourselves by means of this unrighteous wealth, $20 bills, so that when it fails, what it fails, money, the monetary system, the world, when this life is over, then they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so you're walking down a street in heaven and some Malawian comes running up to you and he says, you're the one. Yeah, you gave and they brought me the gospel and I'm in heaven forever and he's your best friend. And the only way you could do that was by taking your stuff and giving it away. Your money and giving it away. And you established a friend in heaven. This principle for Managers number two, or this practice is number two. This is the encouraging practice of investing in eternity. The encouraging practice of investing in eternity. The reality is that God's given me resources to use for His glory, for His gospel. It's, I can't take it with me. It's only good for this life. If I build for this life only, either it will get eaten up, it will rust away, or it will get stolen. Or your kids are going to have a yard sale when you're gone and try to get as much money as they can so they can buy more video games. And there goes your life right before your eyes. Instead of getting to heaven and the cheers start, I'm making this up. The cheers start and they say, there's the guy. There's the guy. He's my friend. He invested in me. You know, and it doesn't have to be unsaved people. It could be people in ministry that you have sustained that you may or may not even know who when you get to heaven, they're your best friend. You realize what you did all your life sustained us to do what we've done. And this is, this is the multiplying factor here. And it's exponential. You gave, they gave, somebody else gave, and you're a friend of all of those people. And they welcome you when it's your turn to get to heaven. I take it that's what that means. The third thing we see in the passage is the qualifying prerequisite for growing responsibility and increasing opportunity. Let me say that again. Number three, we next see in the passage in verses 10, 11, and 12, we have the qualifying prerequisite for a growing responsibility and for increasing opportunity. He says in verse 9, I tell you to make friends of yourselves by means of this unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, you may be, you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. 
One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And then you have not, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? That's a loaded statement. You can build a theology out of verse 11 that God is watching me use my money and based upon how I use my money, he's going to give me a greater responsibility of true wealth, which is in the spiritual realm. This is the unrighteous mammon that is the gauge. It is the prerequisite for me to have increasing opportunity. It is the prerequisite for me to manage unrighteous wealth in such a way that I will have greater responsibility given to me. We have just a minute. Let's turn the page to Luke chapter 19. It's nearby. You won't be able to just like two pages away in Luke chapter 19. And we have here a parable that is very similar to the parable of like the ten talents where the master goes on a long journey. He gives talents to his Servants and they have to invest them and produce. Only this one is ten minas. Okay? It's a, a money gauge, a form of wealth. And he told them a parable, verse 11 of Luke 19, because he was near Jerusalem and so forth. Now this has a direct application of, in many ways, of Israel not taking advantage of the opportunity to have Jesus right with them and to multiply the gospel and his kingdom right in front of their face says a nobleman verse 12 went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return calling 10 of his servants he gave them 10 minas okay a mina was about three months wages he gave them, uh, calling ten servants, he gave them ten minas and he said to them engage in business until I come Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, that's what I'm telling you about is like Jesus being sent to Israel and they rejected him and so forth and they rejected his prophets. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, so this is in the future, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, these 10 servants that he might know what they had gained by doing business. You've had the pearl of great price in your hand. What have you done with it? The first came before him, verse 16, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So it's different than the talent parable. And the implication is that by by using the resources God has blessed me with now and being faithful in little things that God gives you more with which to work in the future and ultimately at at his return and the establish of his eternal kingdom, there will be people who will give in positions of authority that the inference is over these 10 cities. You have managed these resources well. Now I'm putting you in a position of responsibility. And all that happens, I take it, while we're alive on earth in response to our coming king. Back to Luke 16. 
That is the qualifying prerequisite for growing responsibility and having increasing opportunity. It is faithfulness in the little things. It is that if I'm honest with something little, I'll be honest with something big. If I'm dishonest with very little, I'll be dishonest with much. And I take that to be a reflection right back on the dishonest steward or manager in our story. The guy was evidently not capable of handling more for his manager because he messed up on the little things. If then, verse 11, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's my paycheck. That's the stock market. That's my junk in my garage. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? You see, there's contrast throughout this whole story. The idea of an unrighteous wealth or a mammon, it has to do with this life only. The short-term view, the things that are of this world, the things that are the way a worldly man thinks versus the things of true riches, which is eternal life. This is a reflection on Jesus' teaching. What good is it if you gain the whole world, this life only? What good is it if you fill that whole drawer, but you lose your soul? That's true wealth. What's in the eternity future is true wealth. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, that the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen. Our problem is we're so trapped in the material. The final point here to managers is the convicting axiom of an uncompromising loyalty. Let me say that again as well. The convicting axiom, an axiom is a self-evident truth. An axiom is a truism. The convicting axiom, axiom of an uncompromising loyalty. Let's finish reading verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? All right, 10, 11, and 12 to me are all connected and they have to do with the qualifying prerequisites of having greater increase where our master gives us more because we're faithful with what we have. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And there it is, exactly what we just read in Matthew chapter 6. Almost a direct quote. And that, number four, is the convicting axiom of uncompromising loyalty. It is this. It isn't that you might serve one master or the other. It is that you cannot serve two masters. You're fooling yourself if you think you can live the best in both worlds. So what does this do to us? This forces us to question our entire value system. This forces us to question how we're doing and why we're doing it. Again, I would emphasize that what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is not to not be productive. It is to be productive, but it is do it with God's agenda so that I can count it for eternity. Not my plans for this life only. The idea here is that I've got to see 
Every opportunity around me, I've got to begin to think and engage at a whole new level. And that I am motivated to grow my business. I am motivated to grow my bank accounts. I am motivated to grow more corn and to raise more head of cattle. I am motivated to get increase so that I can use it to make friends in heaven. So that I can use it to store ahead treasures in heaven. How can God use me? Otherwise... I'm a failure. I'm going to die. I'm going to be at the funeral home. They're going to bury me in the ground. I'm going to have a yard sale. And that's it. And I'm not saying that it's not worth it to squeak into heaven. But I'm saying shame on the church as resourced as us for not stacking up a huge pile of treasure in heaven. Ten quick questions. You just listen. I'll rattle them off and we're done. All in relation to this story generated in my mind out of studying this passage. Number one, question number one for managers. How committed am I really to my master, King Jesus, and his agenda? Question number two. Do I put any significant effort into working my investments and resources for the eternal payout? In other words, am I just stuck in my payouts for now, for Florida? You know, for uh, it's a couple of you going to Florida, have a great time. We won't pray for you, but we love you. <laughs> it's not wrong to go to Florida. Just know you're going to Florida for the right reasons. Okay. Number three, if I am age 40 or above, if I'm at least age 40 or above, and really it applies to everybody, if I am age 40 or above, am I working to ensure that the settlement of my property and accumulated resources will have the most enduring impact for Christ after I'm gone. That's my point about my kids selling it and, you know, buying a scooter for their kids. Am I truly willing, number four, to be less comfortable now to gain incredible friendships in eternity? Question number five, when is the last time I intentionally directed my personal valuable resources, including time, money, and things, to invest them directly in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number six, am I teaching my children through my lifestyle and decision making now what it looks like to store up treasure and investment in heaven? Number seven, am I cooperative or uncooperative with my spouse's desire to invest more in eternity and less in this world? Number eight, are there tangible assets that I hold that can or should, I should liquidate for a more efficient investment in eternity? In other words, Am I holding on to a bunch of stuff and it's actually depreciating in value because it's rusting or being eaten or people are stealing off of it and I need to liquidate it and store up some treasure and friends in heaven? Number nine, do I have any natural talents, spiritual gifts, or acquired skills that ought to be used at a greater level for eternal investment? Quick illustration is we're digging holes for our modular classrooms that's taken us longer than sheets to build. He's digging holes. We got a guy in church with a backhoe and a dump truck and he shows up 
And he digs all the holes in a day, works for a day and a half in the middle of the week when he could be off on billable time. He never turns in a bill to us. Do I have acquired skill, resources, tools that I can use to lay up treasure? With the right attitude, that guy laid up treasure in heaven. The wrong attitude is to think, Pastor Van will really like me. Though Pastor Van will really like you if you do that, that doesn't matter. What matters is what King Jesus the Master sees. Number 10, are there eternal investment leaks in my life? Let me say that again. Are there eternal investment leaks in my life? That would be priorities or practices or projects that are only bleeding off the resources and energy that should be used for a greater eternal investment in my life. There's 10 questions Here's the deal. Only you can process this. Only you can let the Spirit of God show you what to do. By His grace, to disentangle from the weights of this world that so easily, and sin that so easily besets us. And to see the world through this entirely new set of lenses that I am all about every day that God gives me laying up treasure in heaven And how awesome that really is. Let's pray. Father, it's always good to be together. And your word always challenges us. So now please help us apply it. Convict us. And we need to process this now. And we need to live it out little by little. Inch by inch to bring change to our world. Thank you that it's a grace system and not a work system. Thank you that the same grace that was meted out by your good hand to save us is the same grace that is meted out every day to teach us how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus in this world today. We need it. We'll count on it. And we'll just trust that 2015 will be a year of stacking up piles of treasures in heaven by your grace for your glory for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.